If, if you were to partake in a Passover feast with a typical Jewish family today, uh, you might be surprised by an extra place setting at the table when you sit down to observe the Passover meal. Now, you might further be surprised when later in the evening a cup of wine would be poured at that extra place setting. No one's been there for the entire evening. The place setting is there, but towards the end of the meal, someone would pour a cup of wine at that extra place setting, and then a child would be sent to open the door to welcome that mystery guest. And yet, year after year in Passover feasts all over the world, that guest never shows up. Because the guest that they're waiting for in those Passover feasts and have been waiting for for 2,000 years is none other than the prophet Elijah. The extra place setting is for Elijah, and towards the end of the Passover meal, a child is sent to the door to see if Elijah is outside and ready to come in. And the reason for that is because the, the Old Testament repeatedly teaches us that Elijah would come before the Messiah. And because most Jewish families do not believe that Messiah has come, they're still waiting for someone to come and prepare the way for the king. I want you to turn to your Bibles, if you're not already there, to Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. It's been 400 years since the last Jewish prophet, a, a guy named Malachi, prophesied that there would come a, a messenger, a prophet, a herald to prepare the way for the king, and he would come, he would be Elijah. In Matthew's gospel, 400 years have passed from Malachi till Matthew's, Matthew begins his story. If you were with us last week studying the text together, chapter 2, uh, 30 years have passed from the end of chapter 2 to the beginning of chapter 3. That entire period of time from Jesus going to Egypt and then to Nazareth to about to come on the scene in, uh, in the Galilee area, 30 years have passed. And we know nothing from the Gospel of Matthew about what happened to Jesus in that time. The, the Gospel of Luke tells us one story about Jesus at the age of 12, but that's it. That's all we've got. 30 years have passed, and the story continues. Matthew introduces for us a new character to the story, a guy named John the Baptist. Now, you happen to find yourself this morning at Pocosin Baptist Church, and some Baptists might tell you that we trace our roots all the way back to the very first Baptist, our denominational forefather, John himself. He is, after all, a Baptist. So he's the one we blame for potlucks and long business meetings and all that sort of Baptisty stuff that we do. No, it's not what John is saying. When he calls him a Baptist, he doesn't mean he's a Baptist like we Baptists today, but he's a baptizer. He's going around baptizing people. We're going to learn why he's doing that in a little bit. But Matthew wants us to see that John is the one who has come to prepare the way for the king. 
I want you to look uh, at verse 3 for a moment. Matthew writes, This is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. The, the quotation is from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And Matthew is saying, when Isaiah uh, in chapter 40, verse 3 says, someone's coming to prepare the way for the king, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Matthew says, it's John the Baptist. Matthew's also alluding to similar prophecies given by Malachi in Malachi chapter 3 and 4, where he talks about this coming messenger who will prepare the way for the Lord. Luke tells us that John the Baptist comes not as Elijah, but in the spirit of Elijah. And Matthew wants us to see as well by, by pointing out by pointing out John's clothing, he's not just telling you he's some sort of a weird hippie that wears camel hair with a belt on. He's actually drawing our attention to 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, where it tells us that Elijah wore the exact same attire. This is the one who's come to prepare the way for the king. And as to why we're told that he eats locust and wild honey, I have no idea but it sounds like quite a diet. So John is the Elijah who is to come, and he is preparing the way for the king. And here's the question I want us to ask this morning. How does John prepare the way for the king? How does he prepare the way? He doesn't do it by clearing a path. He doesn't do it by telling people to beautify an exterior. He, he prepares the way for the king by inviting God's people to prepare their hearts. And we prepare our hearts for the king by repenting. So if you want the big idea of the sermon in a sentence, it's that you're not prepared to meet the king unless and until you repent. You're not prepared to meet the king unless and until you repent. I want to show you, with God's help, five truths about repentance from our text this morning. Number one, repentance requires faith. Repentance requires faith. At the beginning of Mark's gospel, Jesus opens up his mouth for the first time in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, and he begins by saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So repentance is not just something that, that fiery, weird Baptist preachers like John the Baptist talk about. Repentance is all about Jesus' message too. And Jesus says we begin by repenting and believing the gospel. Uh, Christians have long looked at passages like this one to summarize what it means to be converted. To, to repent simply means to, to turn from your sin. You're going one direction and you turn around. And to believe is, is to trust. It's to put all your weight on Jesus. So when Jesus begins his ministry, he begins by telling us, here's how you come to me. 
Turn from your sin. Trust in me. Repent and believe. I remember years ago teaching, I believe it was teaching on Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Someone came up to me and they said, well, what do I do first? Do I repent first or believe first? Can I do one without the other? Can I believe now and repent later? Well, John the Baptist helps us understand. Look at Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why does John the Baptist invite his listeners to repent? Because they believe that God's kingdom is at hand. So repentance and faith are like two sides of the same coin. You cannot have one without the other. Genuine faith, real faith, is repentant faith. And genuine repentance is a believing repentance. So if you're in this room and you think that you can believe now and turn from your sins later, you're sadly mistaken. You cannot have one without the other. Perhaps if you've been here with us for a while, you've heard me illustrate repentance and faith like, uh, like this. You're at the edge of a cliff, and you notice at the edge of that, you're there at that edge of that cliff, and Mama Grizzly is coming fast towards you, and she's about to devour you. You have nowhere to go until you look at the edge of the cliff and you see a precipice down there. And on that precipice is a law or a tall and mighty tree. And, and you look down and then you look back and Mama Grizzly's getting closer. So the only way to be saved is to jump off of the edge of that cliff and grab onto that tree, right? So here's the question. What do you need to do first? Do you turn away from the ground that you're standing on or do you trust that the tree will save you? Which do you do first? Both, right? You do both. You've got to do both. You can't turn from this unless you're trusting in that. And you won't, trust, you won't turn from this unless you're trusting in that. So too with repentance and faith. Real repentance is a believing Repentance. You will never repent unless you believe. And if you believe, you will repent. So you're not prepared to meet the king unless and until you repent. And repentance requires faith. But what is it that we must believe? Among other things, you must believe that the wrath of God is coming if you will not Repent. So number two in our text this morning, repentance means fleeing. Repentance means fleeing. It's running away. Look at chapter 3, verse 5. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. So, so I want you to ask why. Why are all these people coming out to see John the Baptist at the Jordan River in the wilderness? What is it that's attracting all of these people? Is it just that he's a kind of weird, creepy-looking guy out in the wilderness baptizing people? Is it that he eats locusts and honey? What is it that's attracting all of these people? I think we're given an answer in verse 7. 
When John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So why are the people coming to hear John the Baptist? Because they're fleeing, they're, they're fleeing the wrath to come. They understand that they are in danger, that God's wrath is on them because of their sin. And so they go to hear John's message of repentance. Now, we're going to talk more about John's response to the Pharisees and the Sadducees in just a moment, but I just want you to think about that phrase, flee from the wrath to come. What's wrath? It's fierce anger. So wrath, fierce anger is coming. Think again about Mama Grizzly Bear charging towards you on the edge of that cliff. Fierce anger, wrath is coming. Here's the question. Whose wrath is coming? Whose wrath? It's God's. It's God's. You remember what we sung earlier? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So holy, in fact, that your sinful eyes cannot see His glory. So holy that He will and must judge all sin. He's holy, and His wrath is coming. And this is really all over John's preaching. Look at verse 10. He says, God will cut fruitless trees down and do what with them? Throw them into the fire. Look at verse 11. He says, Jesus will come and immerse baptized people in fire. Look at verse 12. Jesus will, in the end, the final judgment we prayed about earlier, Jesus will burn unbelievers with unquenchable fire. Repentance is fleeing from the wrath to come. Now, again, here's the question, brother, sister, friend. Why is God's wrath coming? Because of sin. Because of your sin and my sin. The sin of those people scattered across the Jordan River listening to a preacher wearing camel's hair. Wrath of God against sin. This is not a popular topic to preach about, but hell is a real place and a real destination for real people who will not really repent. Repentance is recognizing and fleeing from the wrath to come. Uh, Years ago, Dr. Brian Chappell told a story that, that illustrates this well. He said, on August 6, 1945, in the town of Hiroshima, Japan, a little girl named Mashiko was walking with her school chums down a city street. The sirens had gone off, but they had gone off before and nothing had happened. And so Mashiko and her little friends didn't really pay attention to the sirens that day. And then Mashiko turned the corner of a building with her friends trailing behind, and in a millisecond, they were dust. In a few more seconds, the heat wave came that literally melted the skin off of her face and body. Now, we we all knew as a nation what caused that atomic bomb. 
We knew of the deceit at Pearl Harbor. We knew of the lack of mercy at Midway. We knew of the slaughter at Bataan. We had every reason to be angry, but when the newsreel showed us Machico, our hearts cried out for peace. And we brought Machico to this country for healing. A nation uh, turning out its hearts in mercy because we saw what the fire could do. This was a fire that lasted but a few seconds. And here, John the Baptist points us to a fire that is unquenchable. Do we see what the fire can do? Do we believe that? Repentance means fleeing from the wrath to come. Despite everything that the Japanese had done to our country, if you had stood there with Machiko, if you knew what was coming, I know what you would have done. You would have cried out, run, run, flee, run away. The fire is coming. You would have done that. You would have done that. And so too should we who know how to escape the wrath to come. Repentance requires faith. Repentance means fleeing from God's righteous wrath. The question you might be asking yourself is, well, but why? I mean, am I really that bad? I mean, come on. Look at that other guy in here this morning. I'm not as bad as him. I'm not as bad as her. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. At least I don't fill in the blank. Am I really that bad? that I need to flee from coming wrath? If you feel that way, you need to understand that number three, repentance means forsaking. Repentance means forsaking. Uh, on the one hand, repentance means forsaking your sin. Okay? If sin is, is the atomic bomb that destroys us all in the end, then we've got to run from it. We've got to forsake it. We've got to leave it behind. But I want to suggest to you that there's another part of us that we have to forsake if we're going to truly repent, something we don't think about or talk about as often as we should. You need to forsake not only your sin, but your self-righteousness. It is not enough to run away from your badness. You've got to run away from your self-goodness too. To see this, we need to go back to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These were the two major religious groups in Jesus' day, and they're going to be repeat, recurring characters throughout the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to, we're going to run to these guys a lot a Pharisee actually comes from a word that means to separate from. And it's really a good analogy for who the Pharisees were. These were strict separatists. They were isolationists. These were fundamentalists. These were the guys that, that looked at the Old Testament law, studied it, and they devoted their lives to strict observance of the law of God and separation from everybody who would not follow in their footsteps. That was the Pharisees. And then there were the Sadducees. Uh, the Sadducees got their name from uh, a guy named Zadok, who was the high priest during the reign of King David. And the Sadducees were very different from the Pharisees. The Pharisees were kind of like the people's religious teachers. But the Sadducees were elites. Uh, if you remember, later on in the Gospels, 
Jesus is going to go on trial, and, and those that are listening to his case is a group of Jewish leaders called the Sanhedrin. It's kind of like the Jewish Supreme Court. Almost all of the members of the Sanhedrin were Sadducees. These were wealthy, powerful, religious elites. Kind of like the members of our Supreme Court here in the United States are mostly graduates of Harvard and Yale. They're elites. So too were the Sadducees. And, and like many elites in our world today, the Sadducees had a pretty progressive worldview. So the Sadducees didn't believe in miracles. They didn't really believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in the resurrection, life after death. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees are fighting each other all the time. And yet, when Jesus comes on the scene, both of them unite and fight against Jesus. But we're seeing an echo of that or a shadow of that right here at the Jordan River as John is preaching. Because the Pharisees and the Sadducees come not to listen to John's message for themselves, but to make sure that he is following all the rules and doing everything right and that nothing sinister is spreading throughout Judea. John knows this. John knows exactly what these guys are thinking as they come to, to, to hear him preach. And that's why he says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? That's why he sees them in the corner there on a Sunday morning as he's preaching. And he says, you brood of vipers. When I read that, I started laughing, just studying it this past week. And I was just thinking about myself. And if a group, a group of Pharisees and Sadducees came in here on a Sunday morning, I would probably think, wow, I'm so glad they're here. They probably really need to hear some of this. But John's like, no, you're a bag of snakes. You guys are awful. What are you doing here? These, these Pharisees and Sadducees believe they believe that they are fine in the eyes of God because of who they are. If you were to ask any self-respecting Jew in John the Baptist's day, what's the best thing about you? You would ask especially a Pharisee or a Sadducee, what's the best thing about you? You know what they would probably say? I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew. And John takes his finger, and he points at the very best thing about them, and he says, that's not good enough. Look at the text. Verse 9. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. John's preaching. He's there at the Jordan River. It's probably a, a rocky bed, a rocky beach. And, and John sees these Pharisees and Sadducees, and he says, you think you're fine with God because you're a Jew? Guess what? If God wants to, he can make his children out of these rocks right here. In other words, God looks not only at your sin and tells you to forsake that, he looks at your self-righteousness and he says, that's not good enough either. Isaiah 64, verse 6, the prophet says, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. 
Do you, do you catch that? All your righteous deeds, apart from Christ, are like a polluted garment. I want you to just think about that for a second. The best you can do, the best you can offer God, apart from Christ, is like a filthy garment that you wad up and throw in the washer or in the trash because it's that bad. That's your best. That's your Sunday best, and you just put a big gift in the offering box, and you served on, a, on the volunteer team that morning, and you sang with all your might for all the songs, and you stayed awake for the whole sermon. Even that, God says, filthy rags. Your best is not good enough. If you want to come to God, if you want to truly repent, it's not enough to forsake your sin. You must forsake your self-righteousness too. You must stop trusting in yourself entirely. You have to forsake all hope in you. Because it's not about you working your way to make yourself right with God. Let me just pause for a second. I want to say a word to all the young people in this room. So, boys and girls, those of you that are 18 or younger, I want your ears to perk up for just a second. Listen to me. Your earthly parents, your mom and dad, they can tell you about repentance. They can model repentance for you with their lives. They can encourage you to repent. They cannot make you repent. Boys and girls, young people, teenagers, mom and dad can tell you all of this stuff until they're blue in the face, but you have to repent. You have to turn. You have to trust Him. You have to forsake hope in yourself. You cannot think that because I've got a good, godly mom and dad, I'm fine. No, you're not. You have to repent. You have to trust in Christ. And our hope and prayer as a church is that we're going to keep telling you that until we're blue in the face. And that in time, you'll really believe and really repent. Now, Charles Spurgeon says, the greatest enemy to human souls is the self-righteous spirit which makes men look to themselves for salvation. Your greatest enemy is your own self-righteousness that you think you can do it and figure out on your own, and you can't. You're not prepared to meet the king unless and until you repent. And repentance means forsaking your sin and your self-righteousness. Maybe you're asking, well, how do I know if I've really done that? Number four gives us an answer. Number four, repentance bears fruit. Repentance bears fruit. What if I were to tell you that I parachuted to Pocosin Baptist Church this morning? Would you believe me? What if I told you I parachuted and my parachute didn't work and I'm sorry, I'm a little beat up, but I'm here? Would you believe me then? You can't have an encounter with the ground going 120 miles per hour and not be changed, can you? Why do we think we can have an encounter with a God that created gravity and the ground and the space and the sky and think that we cannot be changed? 
Why is it that so many professing Christians think that they can encounter God and not be changed? Repentance will bear fruit. Real repentance will change you. In fact, that's what repentance means. It means change. It's a change of mind leading to a change of heart, leading to a change of behavior. Your your thinking changes, your emotions change, your actions change. That's what repentance looks like. The, The biggest indicator of whether someone has truly repented is, is there change? This ought to be right now a comfort to some of you and a conviction to others. Is there change? John says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Verse 8. He he doesn't say, listen, clearly, you've got to get this. He does not say, repent, or he doesn't say, rather, bear fruit so that you can repent. He doesn't say change so that you can be right with God, but change because you have repented. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And in this story, John mentions two types of fruit. First of all, in verse 6, there's the initial fruit of baptism. Those that believed John's message were baptized by him in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. Uh, That word baptism literally means to immerse or dunk. So it's what any sane person would do with an Oreo, right? You dunk it. You You don't get a few drops of milk and sprinkle it on top. You dunk that thing all the way under, and then you eat it. That's what the word means, baptize. It's dunking. It's immersing, okay? Um, And and this practice of baptizing or or dunking people as a religious symbol, it's not new to John the Baptist. He doesn't invent this. In fact, this was was pretty common by John's day as a religious symbol. And, And one of the uses of that symbol was for Gentiles that wanted to convert to Judaism. They would go to uh, what was called a mikvah, and I actually was able to visit and see a mikvah when I went to uh, Jerusalem a few years ago, and I think we've got a picture for you. You see the steps going down into what would be the pool of water. This is right outside, just south of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. In fact, Jesus probably would have walked right past this mikvah as he ascended the southern steps to go into the temple. Perhaps this very spot is where uh, thousands of people were baptized on the day of Pentecost when 3,000 souls repented and believed the message that Peter preached. And so they would go into this mikvah bath and they would be immersed, they would be submerged underwater to signify, to symbolize that this Gentile now wanted to become a Jew and follow Jesus. And so get what John is doing here. John is at the Jordan River. His audience is Jews. They're already Jews. And John is saying, listen, your Jewishness means nothing when it comes to having a right relationship with God. God can raise up stones, or he can raise up these stones as children of Abraham. If you want to be right with God, you must repent. And to show your repentance, be baptized. You're basically saying, if you're a Jew, I am no better prepared to meet God on my own than the average Gentile over there. That's what they're receiving when they get baptized in the Jordan River. 
John Piper puts it this way. When a Jewish person received John's baptism, it was a radical act of individual commitment to belong to the true people of God based on personal confession and repentance, not on corporate identity with Israel through birth. So too with our baptism today. This is a radical act of individual commitment to belong to the true people of God based on personal repentance and faith in Christ alone. That's what baptism is. If you, individual, not because your parents did it, but you have turned from your sins and trusted in Jesus, you receive baptism to symbolize your new life in Christ. So let me just ask practically, brother, sister, friend, have you been baptized? If you're a follower of Jesus, have you been baptized? If you haven't been baptized as a believer in Jesus, you're, you're missing the first fruit of repentance. Listen, there's only one in the entire New Testament, there's only one unbaptized believer. Do you know who he is? The thief on the cross. They didn't have time to baptize him before he died when he was hanging on the cross, right? There's one. That's it. Everybody else in the New Testament, upon their faith in Jesus, received the gift of baptism. So if you're in this room and you're a follower of Jesus and you've not yet given yourself to baptism after you put your faith in Jesus, we love you, we're glad you're here, but I want to encourage you, take the first step of obedience. Show the first fruit of repentance. The second fruit that John mentions, and that's the ongoing fruit of good works. The initial fruit of baptism and the ongoing fruit of good works. Listen, John is not content with getting people dunked in a river. He wants more from them than that. Look at verse 10. Again, he's talking to the Pharisees, and he says, even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Why do you lay an axe at the root of a tree? You're going to chop it down, right? John is saying the axe is coming. The axe of judgment is coming, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. If you have truly repented, Christian, if you have truly repented, your life will result in good works. So, so let me ask you to ask yourself a personal question. How has my life changed since I began trusting Jesus? How has my life changed? I really mean for this to be a, a, a strong encouragement to the believers in this room. If you're a follower of Jesus in this room and you've been following him for any number of years or even months, you ought to see evidence of change in your life. The old you is not the same as the new you. Now, hear me. What we're not talking about is perfection, but the direction of your life. Not perfection, but direction. How is your life changing as fruit of your repentance? Husbands, do you love your wife with more sacrificial love than you did 10 years ago? Now, you still complain sometimes when she asks you to do some stuff, right? but only half as much as you used to. Guess what that is? Progress. Praise God. Now, your wife might want you to progress a little faster, and so does the Spirit, but He loves you, and He's committed to you. 
moms? Do you lose your cool? Do you lose your patience with your kids as much now as you did 10 years ago, or five years ago, or five months ago? Is there evidence of growth? Again, you, you're, if you're a Christian, why do we confess our sins every week? Hopefully every day. Because we keep doing them, right? We keep sinning. We're not talking about perfection. Is there change? Is there growth? Do you have a, a, a smaller appetite for the things of this world that you used to love? Are the things that, that used to absolutely captivate you and you couldn't get on without it and you needed it and maybe you're still tempted by it, but not quite as much as you used to be. Is there growth? How has God changed you? And let me just remind you again, because this is so crucial. Brother, sister, friend, we are not saved by our works. We are saved for good works. Listen to Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works. You cannot work your way to salvation. But if God saved you, the works will follow. Listen. For we are, his more, we are His workmanship, created in Jesus Christ for good works. Are you bearing fruit of repentance? That fruit is going to look different for every person in this room. If you're a single in this room, that might look like resisting sexual immorality, resisting the temptation to look at things you shouldn't look at or be in relationships you shouldn't be in. If you're married, husbands, that might look like sacrificing for your wife without complaining. Wives, that might look like submitting to your husbands and letting him lead, even sometimes making some mistakes along the way. Kids, young people, that's obeying your mom and dad. Not fighting with your brothers and sisters. Employees, that's working hard at your job not cheating your employer, not wasting time on Facebook or sending tons of text messages when you should be working and you know you should be working. It means honoring your employers and the way you talk about them and talk to them. If you're retired, it might mean using your time and your talents to, to love God and love your neighbor. Do you see evidence of change, Christian? If you're in this room and you claim to be a Christian, but you will not fight your sin, and you will not fight for good works, let me just tell you as bluntly as I can, you have no reason to believe that you're really saved. If you will not fight your sin, and you will not fight for good works, you have no reason to believe you're truly saved. Why? Because those whom God saved saves bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We have to examine ourselves, brothers and sisters, what fruit can we see God work in our life? And when you can point to a good fruit, you know, when your wife asked you to get her ice cream and you get yourself a bowl too and you get yourself one extra scoop and then you eat it before you bring her the two bowls that look very even. I don't know why that sounds really specific like <laughs> someone's ever done that. But you find yourself not doing that as often as you used to. Or when you do that, the pangs of conviction come over you. And you start confessing in the middle of a sermon. <laughs> this is what God does as he changes his people. Listen to me. Are 
we bearing good fruit. If the Spirit is in you, you will change, church. We cannot stay the same. We cannot encounter this God and look the same. Now, now listen, I want to just, before we get to the final point, let me just say one more thing here. I want PBC to be a safe place for sinners. I want this to be a place where we can honestly say, I'm really struggling. This, this needs to be a safe place where we can confess our sins and even in our fellowship groups or our Sunday school classes or other Bible studies, we can confess to each other where we're struggling. This cannot, this must not be a safe place for hypocrites. Here's what I mean. When John the Baptist sees hypocrites enter into his congregation and hear him preach, he calls them out on it. Let this be a place where we are pushed to be open about our sin, where we are pushed to fight our sin, where if you want to keep a secret part of your life hidden from everybody else, you're going to be increasingly uncomfortable here because the people of God are pressing in to your life and challenging you to grow and fight your sin. You can be a, a sinner here pleading for mercy, but let us not be a place where we offer harbor for hypocrites. If you are a hypocrite, I've got good news. You can repent today, right now, and be restored. Why should you do any of this? Why should you repent? Number five, fifth lesson we learn from the text is that repentance brings freedom. Repentance brings freedom. Verse 11, John shifts his discussion from his own message to the one that's coming, the one that he's preparing the way for, we're going to meet him again next week in verse 13. But John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me, this is Jesus, is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John says this, Jesus is coming, and he's going to baptize everybody in one of two ways. Either they're going to be immersed in the Holy Spirit, or they're going to be immersed in fire. Baptizing with the Holy Spirit and fire. So then repentance brings two kinds of freedom to the people of God. Repentance, first of all, brings freedom from future judgment. Repentance brings freedom from future judgment. Verse 11, John says Jesus is going to immerse people in fire, and I think he's talking about the unquenchable fire that he mentions in verse 12. There really is an unquenchable fire coming. I remember years ago, you all have heard me talk about this before, a preacher that I heard in, in Memphis, Tennessee, who, who did everything he could to scare people out of hell. Let's not do that. Let's not do that. But let's not swing, swing the pendulum over here and act as if hell isn't real. Because it is. There really is a final judgment coming, and no one will escape it. No one. All of us will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. 
God's people will be welcomed into the presence of God forever, not on the basis of their works, but on the basis of the works of Christ. And everyone else will be cast away into an unquenchable fire. That's what the Bible clearly teaches. And by the way, Jesus, yes, gentle and lowly, Jesus talks more about hell than anybody else in all of the Bible. And we're going to see that in Matthew's gospel. So repentance can bring and will bring freedom from future judgment. Let me ask you, if you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, have you repented of your sins, turned away from them, turned away from your self-righteousness and trusted in Christ. Have you done that? If you have, rejoice. If you haven't, do it today. A second way that repentance brings freedom, it brings freedom for forever joy. Not freedom, not just freedom from future judgment, but freedom for forever joy. If you repent, verse 11, you will be baptized or immersed with the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be baptized in the Holy Spirit? It's, it's not as our charismatic friends teach some sort of second blessing where you receive uh, the Spirit and after you're a Christian or you receive the ability to speak in tongues or you receive some sort of uh, emotional experience. That's not it at all. If you go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul makes it clear that all the Corinthians were baptized in the Spirit. All of them, because every Christian receives the Spirit. We're immersed in the Spirit when we repent and believe in Christ. And, and in that moment, we are set free for forever joy. We are now in the Spirit. By His help, we are able to live the life we were made for. That's what the Spirit does. That's good news. Well, Elijah has come and gone. John the Baptist who came in the spirit of Elijah has come and gone. Jesus has come and gone, but he's coming again. And John tells us what will happen when he returns. Look at verse 12. His winnowing, winnowing fork is in his hand, and he'll clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. When farmers would gather the, the harvest in those days, the wheat would often get mixed up with the useless chaff. And so the farmers would take a, a, a winnowing fork, and when the wind was blowing, they would toss the pile up into the air, and the chaff was lighter, so the wind would cause it to be blown away, and the wheat would fall to the ground. This is called threshing. And John uses that as an image for what will happen when Jesus returns. Listen, I think this is a warning for everybody that makes time to come to church on a Sunday. Because we're all kind of in one pile, aren't we? We're all here. But the day is coming when Jesus will take his winnowing fork and he'll throw us into the air, as it were, and only the wheat will remain. Jesus will come to separate the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats. We might all look the same on a Sunday morning, but the day is coming when Jesus will separate us based on whether our faith was truly in him or not, whether we truly repented or not. So here's my challenge for you this morning. If you're in this room and you've never repented, I plead with you, repent today. 
Turn from your sins today. Trust in Christ today. If you're in this room and you're a Christian, you have repented, but you've not been baptized, make that first step of obedience. We hope to have a baptism service soon here at PBC, so talk to someone at the white flag when you leave about that, and we'd love to talk with you about how you could get baptized. If you're in this room and you're a Christian and you're not repenting, you have repented, you put your faith in Jesus, but you find yourself today in a very stale, dry season where you're, you feel like you're caught in sin and you're not putting it to death, you're not confessing it, you're not dealing with it. It's not an accident. You're here this morning. Jesus himself gives a warning to the church in Ephesus and he says, repent. And if you will not repent, I will remove your lampstand from its place. I'll take away your influence. If God would do that for the church in Ephesus, then won't he do the same for us? If you're in this room and you're a follower of Jesus, you have repented, but you're not continuing to repent, I plead with you, return to him. One step back, return to him today. And if you are repenting, as, as best as you can, you're fighting your sin and you're putting it to death and you're confessing it, when God brings it to your attention, don't stop. Martin Luther said that the Entire life of believers should be one of repentance. So, brother, sister, friend, don't let that day, the day of threshing, the day of final judgment, don't let it come before it's too late. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you. We praise you for your kindness to us. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the good news, Jesus, that you died in our place and rose from the dead. I pray that you would work in the hearts of every hearer in this room this morning, that you would meet us where we are, and you would, by your mercy and for your glory and for our good, bring us to where we need to be. To the unconverted, we pray that you would give them faith to believe and repentance to turn away. To the non-baptized Christian, I pray that you'd give them the confidence and the faith and the obedience to take that first step following Jesus. To the Christian that's caught and mired in sin, I pray that you would help them to return, to repent, to be restored, to believe that you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And to the repenting believer, we pray that you would help us to continue for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Just stand and sing with me.